0: Welcome to episode two of On the Balcony. In today's episode, we continue to examine Ronald Heifetz's groundbreaking book, Leadership Without Easy Answers, and look at chapter two, To Lead or to Mislead. Leadership Without Easy Answers is the book behind the most provocative class at Harvard University, and it has impacted generations of change agents, executives, and people who care about developing others. So, last time I shared with you a few of the ways this book introduced a new kind of thinking about leadership. No more great man theory or just leadership skills or tools, but actually defining the work of leadership around the difficult, complex challenges out there. And that is what chapter two is actually about. Heifetz describes that leadership work begins by defining what the problem really is and then exploring who the stakeholders are that actually need to be included around the table. In his class, he would often even draw a round conference table where he puts the stakeholders, even if they never met in real life. Because in messy challenges, That's where things get heated, where conflict emerges, where people disagree or even disengage. Not because they resist change per se, it's because they resist the loss embedded in addressing the problem. Today's guest knows a lot about this. I am so excited that we're joined by Mitzi Johnson. She's the former Speaker of the House in Vermont and she practiced a lot of leadership in her many years in office, as we'll hear in a few moments, especially around her work on gun legislation. As with all of our guests, Mitzi will bring a piece of the text from chapter two, and together we'll chew on it deeply for more insights and application. If you are an avid reader, I invite you to read along with the book. In the second half of the show, you can continue to join me on my own developmental journey. I will go back to my coach, Andy, and explore I, Michael, can practice more leadership. And that will get pretty personal today. For now, let's begin with my conversation with Mitzi. Welcome, Mitzi.
1: Hello, Michael.
0: So wonderful to have you on the show.
1: Thanks for having me. This is fun.
0: <laughs> Mitzi, we were starting our show as every time with a brief summary even before we we get to know you a little bit better we'll start with a summary of the chapter to ground us in this chapter the chapter of this episode which is uh, chapter 2 of leadership without easy answers and and i'm really curious to hear from you what core ideas stood out in that chapter
1: i love this chapter <laughs> um i love these concepts here it's for me it's really about evolution and this adaptive leadership concept of disequilibrium and about vulnerability. And it's that tension between making progress on really hard things and getting pulled to what people want you to do.
0: I think it is the first chapter where he actually like begins to parse out adaptive from technical. Like defining the the work it it starts actually in the introduction, but like I think he he makes progress on defining the work of leadership as adaptive work, not technical work, as the work that requires learning, unlearning, where the challenges are complex and can't be fixed and solved easily by expertise, right That would be a technical problem, a routine problem, but adaptive problem is this messy problem. you know you talked about disequilibrium, which I find. So often uh, to be like a little bit of an edgy concept, like because the word is so edgy, disequilibrium, right? And and it's really like like the way how I read it in this chapter as I was reading it again and, and understand it is like it's really the the stress that happens, the the heat that happens when people are overwhelmed and need to learn something and need to like adapt.
1: Yeah, it's this really unsettled feeling of chaos and the unknown.
0: And. I think he spent some of this, this chapter like, explaining like the patterns around that, how people are restoring heat, how people are <laughs> freaking out over heat, and how leadership is really managing, managing, orchestrating this conflict, orchestrating the, the heat at the right level.
1: Yes, and, and sort of the subtext of how to read it, right? He doesn't talk explicitly about that, but really being able to read it and understand it in order to help make decisions.
0: Mitzi, I'm curious to hear a little bit about sort of your own identities that inform your own work as leadership practitioner and as somebody who's like loves this work and, and read this book, this chapter with me again. And that may inform the, the wisdom you bring to this, but maybe also the biases we're bringing.
1: Basically being a, a recovering politician, <laughs> having spent 18 years in elected office and having been out now for a little over a year. I just so strongly identify with the, the practice of leadership in political office and in leadership, having chaired budget committees and, uh, and been the Speaker of the House in, in the state of Vermont and having a very strong grounding in the practitioner's world with some dabbling in the consultants world in part with you. Now having a little more even balance there, doing more of the training with still keeping a foot in that practitioner's world in, so really thinking about how this relates to policy and all of the pressures that somebody in elected office feels, those those really tug at me quite a lot. I think also some of the bias that I bring is having pretty strong compassion for, for people in those positions and understanding their point of view a little more quickly and easily than you know, I have to work to get myself into the headspace of, you know, of people who are really frustrated that progress doesn't happen quickly, because I, on the inside, I understand why things don't happen faster. So having a really identifying with people who feel those constraints of authority.
0: And and if I may, may throw in there, you know, to to my knowledge, you're one of the few women who held such kind of office in this country. Which, you know, I'm curious about, like, how does that play a role in how you're making sense of this framework and those pressures on that role?
1: No, oh, that's a whole nother podcast or series. <laughs> 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 but certainly being a woman in a space where there were very few other women speakers, my counterpart in the Senate and the governor were both men. And not only were we different genders, we had very different styles of leadership. And so it can be hard to do this kind of adaptive work without partners. I always told my folks leadership is a team sport and adaptive leadership really accentuates that. And the way women partner, you know, just can be very, very different. And so it lends itself very well. I just fit right into to some of the adaptive methodologies and sometimes found it hard to find partners in male counterparts.
0: Yeah, interesting. What Would you say a sentence or two more about that? What's the What was hard?
1: I find myself in spaces where we're talking very frequently about the pressures of women in leadership and all of the extra hurdles that women in leadership face. And I just want to name that men have pressures in leadership too. And one of those pressures that I see is to live up to a more command and control style of leadership a more here's my vision, now I'm going to drag you along with me kind of leadership that society expects men to portray. And that does not lend itself well to some of the more inclusive, adaptive work where where some of the work and the learning is distributed among a broader community. And so getting my counterpart to participate in a little more of the kind of broader stakeholder engagement and compromise was, to be quite gentle, a little challenging. (laughs)
0: Hmm. I think what I heard you say, and maybe I got you wrong, but like, it's not just that men may be, and we're generalizing here, right? You know, each individual deploys themselves in, in their own way. But like, when we think about you know the way how men exercise practice leadership or authority there may be a little bit more of that you know i can fix it i solve the problems approach but what you are actually saying is like people elect and project onto men kind of their hopes for you know we need a we need a go to person that solves fixes and solves and that may make it harder also for men to like be in a more collaborative space
1: did, did i get that correctly yeah and and actually chapter 1 names that a little bit where in chapter one, not a spoiler alert here, because you already hopefully people already listened to the chapter one podcast, (laughs) but but it specifically says leaders not only influence followers, but are under their influence as well. And and so it's a reciprocal relationship there. So there are, you know, different constraints that that men have that make it harder to open them up to partner with in the way that I would want to as a white woman and as a Practitioner of Adaptive Leadership.
0: So Mitzi, every guest brings a quote from the chapter. I hear it for the first time. And, you know, I'm really curious around like what sentence, what quote you brought and want to invite you just to read it to us.
1: The one I chose is actually right up front in the chapter, closing out the first paragraph. And it says, knocked out of equilibrium, living systems summon a set of restorative responses. So in the natural world, when nature gets a curveball, it finds some way of fixing and settling into a new normal. And one of the examples that's used in the book is about those moths that used to be light colored, but then during the Industrial Revolution, there's so much pollution that the light-colored moths kept getting picked off by the birds because they stood out. So, of course, any moths that had a darker coloring could hide a little better, and they all of a sudden had characteristics that made them more survivable, to pass on more genes, right? So any living system summon a set of restorative responses. And that, I think, speaks so heavily to that deep drive to say, Nope, make the pain go away. We're going to fix this. We can just make this little tiny tweak and things are back to normal. In the gun debate, that was, this isn't really a problem in Vermont. Nope, go back to normal. And in the budget debate, it's, oh, well, that happens every year. Nope, we don't need to do anything different. And in the climate change debate, it's a whole lot of, eh, that's an anomaly. Eh, the planet's temperature cycles. Eh, what can one person do? I want to restore normal. And it's that deep, deep discomfort of the unknown and the chaos and things being just out of whack.
0: Yeah, wow. Beautiful, Mitzi. I'm going to read the sentence one more time. And before we go deeper into your own experience, I want to just invite you to, to listen to it as I'm reading it and think about what images come up for you like let your mind wander a little bit what images what stories what metaphors uh associations as loose as they may be come up as as i'm reading that sentence one, one more time so here it comes knocked out of equilibrium living systems summon a set of restorative responses i had
1: this flood of images the first ones that come most easily are images from my days in the state house and all of a sudden being back, like in very specific rooms, in specific conversations with specific people saying, don't make me do this. I can't bring this back to my people at home. I'm not going to vote on this. I'm just that allergic response. Nope, 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 too hard. Some of it is actually thinking about the natural world where I live. So. As you know, you've seen it. I live on an island in Lake Champlain, in Vermont, and the the lake floods. We sort of have high tide, but just once a year in the when the snow melts, uh and it all drains down into the lake, the water level rises, and so a lot of the area around the lake shore has the things that can survive with really wet roots for a few weeks, do fine. And if there are plants that need good drainage, they don't last long there. You know, and so the, the plants that thrive are things that either can have wet feet or things that are built to kind of hold and retain soil that wants to be washed away by the melting lake and all the wave action. And it's a very windy place. So I'm I'm staring out at all these tall, skinny cedar trees that you'd think would snap in a heartbeat. But boy, it takes a lot for a cedar tree to come down as it's whipping all over the place in the wind. And the restorative response to this tough climate is a lot of clustered trees and and deep, long roots that, that help them stay anchored where they are. And those are some of the examples. And now that I'm talking, I'm also thinking of like putting my little nieces and nephew to bed when they were little. And all of the like, no, 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 but I'm thirsty, but I'm tired, <laughs> but just one more chapter, but I really have to use the bathroom, but I'm starving, you know, and like, don't make me do something different. I want to keep doing what I was doing. This lovely flood of images from all these different spaces that are important to me that that come back when I think about what the natural inclination is when something gets knocked out of equilibrium.
0: Yeah i was uh I was struck by um these two words knocked out and then summon like two pretty intense uh verbs like you sort of knock out it's almost like a little brutal but then also summon you talked about allergy before but like there's there's kind of a magnetic force like the summoning is or like a like a, almost a religious connotation me. you is like you summon the i don't know the spirits or the <laughs> uh, force the power like but boy this is like intense language living systems summon a set there's also a lot of uh alliterations here living systems summon a set of restorative responses.
1: <laughs> Say that three times fast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's a forcefulness behind it.
1: And an involuntary aspect.
0: Yeah, you're drawn. You're like pulled. Yeah, you're summoned.
1: This is not gentle and thoughtful. This is involuntary and urgent. You know, must return to normal. All right. All right. So I was thinking about this in relation to the earlier quote from the earlier chapter that I mentioned, which was leaders not only influence followers, but are under their influence as well, and there is very much a symbiotic relationship there. And when somebody who is appointed is authorized, you know, to try to make change in the system, has a higher authority. You know, I think frequently, as as you know, of elected officers, but in any system. And they start feeling the reaction that their people, their authorizers are feeling this allergic response, this, this summoning, this unbidden, like, no, turn around. Don't do that. Get me out of this ick. It has a huge effect on the authority as well. And it takes a lot to not then feel like you must deliver what they are asking for and in adaptive work the the challenge is that oftentimes delivering that even though it is the popular majority view is not the right thing long term
0: let's see i want to read the sentence one more time to you and this time i'm going to invite you to think about your own experience think about your own work of leadership maybe something from that gun legislation, that very intense gun legislation, uh, time comes back to mind where you have some personal resonance experience around this quote, which is, knocked out of equilibrium, living systems
1: summon a set of restorative responses. There's this huge flood of very intense Memories coming back around that. And the, in a lot of political debates, there are people that are all along a spectrum. And then there's a whole bunch of, you know, in the middle, eh, I can go either way. And this debate is not one of those. It elicits super strong responses. And so the situation was that the day after. The horrific Parkland shooting in Florida, a kid with almost the same storyline as in Florida was taken into custody. This very similar life storyline with very specific and the kid in Vermont had a had very specific plans. And that really shattered this Vermont false sense of security where it doesn't happen here right i mean forget the fact that vermont has one of the highest rates of domestic violence in the country but in terms of gun violence and accidental things and what people think of as mass shootings it didn't feel like it happens in vermont despite very lax gun laws here and very high percentage of gun ownership and a strong culture of hunting and so These two things happening together, the horror of Parkland and, oh my God, what a near miss in Vermont. Yeah, we were knocked out. We did not gently slip into a disequilibrium. We didn't even get the two of the one-two punch. We just got the one punch. And it was a real shock to everybody. And I'll admit that I, when you asked me to think about this just now, I had to collect myself for a little while because all of a sudden I was back at when I was knocked out at disequilibrium was you know not even when I heard about when the Governor's chief of staff called me and said, You know this is a private briefing. I just got to tell you what's going on. There was some shock there and gratitude for all the people that and the and the police and the families that that kicked all the right systems into place to to prevent a tragedy. But the knocked out of disequilibrium for me came the next day when I was given the affidavits of what this, you know, would-be killer said to the state's attorney when questioned and to police when questioned and how honest and beyond unashamed, almost proud he was of what he was planning and what he was going to do. And how awful it was and how incredibly intertwined it was with social ostracization and with being a, you know, a bit of a social outcast with, with not having community, with not having a place, with, you know, with not having a lot of supports around him, with living out of his car and being hungry and, you know, all of these social problems compounded in one place that just became this cauldron that was simmering anger. And that's the moment that knocked me out of equilibrium. And I remember forwarding that, those affidavits to my leadership team saying, read these carefully, hug the people you love and come back Monday morning. That was a Friday afternoon that I sent it, like come back Monday morning, being ready to work our tails off. And I had an unexpected partner in the Republican governor who was a lifelong gun owner and had a lot of loyalty among hunting community and people, you know, who fiercely protected the Second Amendment. And he cracked open the door. He was clearly knocked well out of equilibrium because in one of his press statements sort of buried in the third paragraph, it said, you know, maybe it's time that that we should have a conversation in Vermont about who should have guns. And that's the first time he'd ever mentioned something like that. And this was a huge deal in Vermont. I mean, you couldn't even have conversations about noise ordinances around shooting ranges without the NRA being outraged. And so to have a Republican governor, one of their own, who'd always supported Second Amendment issues to come forward and saying, you know, maybe we need to rethink this was huge and then the the restorative responses <laughs> the restorative responses involved an enormous amount of pushback is a, doesn't begin to cover it but a bunch of here's where some gender issues come into play too because my male counterpart and I were on the same page on these issues the Vermont chair of the judiciary committee is a woman in the house and a man in the Senate, they were almost on the same page. Not quite, but almost. But the women in positions of authority got a lot more threats and protests and pushback than than the men in authority. And, and so there was a huge response from gun owners that always knew that their issues would prevail in Vermont. And they knew that this governor always had their back. And so for this conversation, for A, their you know, a main defense of that doesn't happen here, to be completely debunked, and to have a very strong ally of theirs and the governor say, uh, you know what, maybe this time is different, maybe we do need to do something. They were feeling way knocked out of equilibrium. And they had some very strong restorative responses.
0: Thank you, Mitzi. I think what this this case highlights so beautifully is that equilibrium is um, is not the same for everyone. It is so highly contingent on the issues, right? Some people got knocked out out of equilibrium because there was another shooting, and that brought the urgency again to the to the lack of safety around guns and the accessibility, you know, like, right. And, and other folks were knocked out of disequilibrium, out of, out of equilibrium, into disequilibrium because of their understanding of freedom, opportunity, uh, um, and basically like, like independence, leave me alone with my hunting rights and my, my autonomy here. And, Suddenly, a state kind of regulating more, even if that means you—I don't know the details about kind of legislation in the U.S., but it probably has to do with like you know getting a proper license and and showing proper authorization.
1: Oh, we're not even close to that, but
0: yeah. <laughs> but like the losses around that are knocking people out of equilibrium. And maneuvering those multiplicities and I think that's the same for for in a way for every adaptive challenge people are different factions different groups of people with different values and perspectives are going to experience different levels of equilibrium you know related to the potential losses they are facing
1: and I think that the potential word is is important there and it's it's potential losses and perceived losses even if they weren't you know I, I actually spent quite a lot of time with hunters, the avid avid hunters during this period to say okay, let me go through these policies with you that are being considered and I want to make sure that they're not touching the hunting community. I need to be able to tell my constituents and I need to be able to tell my caucus and the Vermont representatives so that they can tell their constituents like if you are a legal licensed hunter none of this affects you and to to be able to try to minimize those losses but i also i spent a lot of time just sitting down with people and saying hey tell me when you first held a gun tell me who gave you your first gun what was that experience and there were actually so many really beautiful sweet stories of that being this rite of passage for a little boy with his father or You know, for one person in particular, somebody who had lost his father relatively young and and it was his uncle who stepped up to sort of provide that and provide that bond. And it's it's an important part for some people of a, you know, of of an experience. And and some of your listeners are going to be like, well, what the hell? They don't have to do that with a gun. And some of your listeners might be like, oh, yeah, yep, that's how it was for me. And so just trying to make space for both of those storylines and uh, yes your point of exactly which which little plot twist pushed somebody knocked somebody out of disequilibrium was wildly different depending on where you stood in this debate
0: yeah and in a way like elected officials are probably like as a part of their role in touch with like these different factions and stakeholders like on a daily basis like that is that is the work right but I think, in a way, practicing leadership always means you are in touch with various stakeholders and factions. Maybe they're not called that way, right? Maybe they are the different departments in your firm, or they're <laughs> the different beneficiaries and the the funders in your nonprofit, or in your in your community, people with different values. But like, there's always different stories and. Different groups will be knocked out of equilibrium in different ways and will try to restore order in productive and unproductive ways in different ways. And the capacity, like I think you described this too beautiful lately, like in a way, it's probably impossible to not be also knocked out yourself. Like you are going to be moved by a piece of the puzzle here because you're a human being that has feelings and is compassionate. But at the same time, like seeing the picture and and being in touch with the various stories.
1: And because you are somebody who is a stakeholder, who is engaged. If you were to sort of map out in a visual way who's involved and what their perspectives are and what they're feeling in terms of loss, like you're in there as well. And so you somehow have to anchor yourself and keep uh, an open mind to and be aware of all these forces while the tide's pushing you all over the place at the same time.
0: Let's see, I'm, uh we're slowly coming to the end of our session, and uh, I have, like so much more we could explore, but I want to wrap up by inviting you one last time to read your quote, and and I'll I'll uh, I'll wrap us up with a very brief question at the end.
1: Knocked out of equilibrium. Living systems summon a set of restorative responses. Let's see,
0: reading that sentence and looking forward into your own journey, what action are you being called to take or to continue to take?
1: You know, this last time when I read it, I looked at the word restorative response and thought about my introduction of being a recovering politician so i feel you know it feels like that's what the last year year and a half has been for me is you know leaving office was in itself getting knocked out i lost my election i was knocked out right so for me it's finding that new normal um my restorative response in being a recovering politician and and just finding a way to do it that allows me to keep contributing and moving forward and not just settling into the couch <laughs> but really keep keep staying engaged and participating and um and i love i love the healing element that the word restorative can have
0: yeah, and we're so lucky to that this is part of your restorative response <laughs> you share your stories your wisdom your reflections with us thank you so much for that mitzi uh, it's been such a joy and honor to do this with you
1: It is wonderful to chat with you, Michael, and I'm so glad you're undertaking this project. Thanks for having me.
0: You may have noticed that we didn't touch on the most recent shootings in Uvalde, Texas. That's because we recorded this episode just a few days before. Here is an update that Mitzi shared with us afterward. Just a week after the shooting, at the school two blocks from the Montpelier Statehouse, Vermont police made use of one of the laws Mitzi passed with the Vermont legislature, the so called Red Flag Law. They used this law to take an 18 year old into custody and to confiscate a semi automatic rifle and ammunition, therefore, preventing another shooting. Coming up, what happens if I change my lens from talking about leadership? to actually practicing it. I'll continue that exploration with my coach, Andy. That's after the break.
2: Hey there, this is Andy, facilitator and executive coach at Konu. Thanks for tuning in to On The Balcony. Are you curious to learn more about how to exercise leadership or how to thrive in times of uncertainty and change? Over the next several months, KONU is hosting a series of virtual sessions designed to help you bring some of the ideas from this podcast into your work and your life. We'll explore key leadership distinctions that can help you mobilize people to make progress in times of change, regardless of your job title, your position, or your seniority. We'll also explore practices and mindset shifts that can help you stay anchored and grounded when the heat goes up, and take care of yourself over the long haul so you don't burn out. You can learn more and sign up at konu.org slash events. And as a regular listener of this podcast, you can use the code balcony to waive your registration fee. That's konu.org slash events. And the registration code is balcony. Excited to see you there.
0: Welcome back to On the Balcony. In the second part of each episode, we'll shift gears towards application. In a moment, you will tune into a live coaching conversation with me as the client, and my colleague, Andy Cahill, as the coach. But before that, let's catch up. You might recall that in the first coaching session, I committed to talking to two of my American friends about their ancestors. I've been wanting to engage more deeply in conversations around social justice and feel that my experience as a German might be helpful in an American context, especially German practice for looking back and talking more about history, particularly when it's hard. My experiment was to have these conversations and to notice whether my worries of being shut out or not belonging came true. And here's the data. They didn't, at least not in the conversations that I had. The conversations were actually really meaningful. One friend shared that one of her ancestors was an intense figure in the American Nazi movement and that she felt disturbed by it and especially how much of a taboo it was to talk about it in her family. That actually made me feel more connected. So. I guess I'm off to a good start. Testing assumptions, learning a little bit more about them. Let's shift now to today's coaching conversation. If you're new to coaching, here are a few things you need to know. You'll notice that Andy asks a lot of questions. That's one of the core skill sets of a good coach. Questions that help me, the client, gain some new awareness into my challenge. In today's session, Andy and I will begin to refine the objective for the larger coaching journey. That is often the work of earlier sessions and crucial for successful engagement. Off we go. Here's Andy.
2: Michael, hello again. Hey Andy. It's good to be back here with you. Thanks for being back. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like you had a really rich conversation with uh mitzi and and i'm looking forward to hearing that at some point point. and i'm really curious to hear what would make this coaching session powerful for you today where should we start so
0: i'm on this journey throughout this this season these these 12 episodes to really explore how to deepen my own practice of leadership and i loved our conversation the last time i've got a few things to share from it but the frame I wanna set for today is I would love to set a goal with you or an intention for this larger arc, really get your help in defining for me what success looks looks like. What would it look like for me to, let's say half a year from now, like in the fall, winter, six months from now, to have a broader skill set, to practice leadership more? around those topics that we've identified in the last session around social justice, diversity, equity, inclusion, maybe climate change, some of those systemic challenges out there that I want to practice more leadership on, like honing that goal.
2: Mm, Brilliant. And it sounds like you've already spent some time sitting with that as a desire or hope or an aspiration. To what extent do you have uh, an emerging vision around what that that success would look like a half year from now and to what extent do you need some help to just kind of start fresh with that question
0: yeah i love the the work we did last time around belonging and and that was really meaningful and i feel like i don't have a big picture yet and i think it would help me just to to know what i'm moving towards as i'm then sort of circling through this coaching journey you know, week by week or every two weeks to like check in and to to like how am I making progress towards this bigger goal? So so no, I don't have that picture yes. And I think that would that would be success for me today <laughs> today, to look kind of to define that image that I'm moving
2: towards. Got it. So it sounds like if you leave today with with some sense of that image that you're moving towards, that would be really meaningful for you on your leadership journey. Mm. The question is still emerging in me, but it's something like, you know, there's something about having a vision that you know will be powerful, but there's also something about the absence of a vision or its opposite that produces disequilibrium or discomfort or discord. There's something about your leadership right now that you sense is that something is missing or lacking. Can you just help me better understand more about what the gap is that you're trying to cross?
0: I think there is a gap. (laughs) is a little vulnerable. We say that leadership is possible for everybody, wherever you sit. And yet here am I, the coach, the teacher, the facilitator, (laughs) who helps others develop their leadership practices. And I'm not sure, frankly speaking, if I'm practicing leadership
2: as much as I actually can or enough. So it sounds like a a part of this question about your evolution as a leadership is something like, am I practicing leadership? And if I am, am I practicing it enough as much as I could be? Is that right? Yeah. (laughs) There's
0: this, um, in the educator world, this is kind of like slightly cynical saying, you know, he who can does, he who can't teaches, you know? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah. God bless the cynics. <laughs> so there's some part of you that's holding that a little bit and going, like, "Am I just someone who can't?" So I'm teaching. Is that right? Is that why did you presence that that uh, kind of playful joke? Yeah,
0: I don't think it's that binary. I think I've you know in my past. I was a dancer and a dance coach, and I loved it both. And I feel like they both belong together. I think the practice informs the teaching and the coaching and the coaching and teaching informs the practice. And there's real, like a, you know, duality between practice and education. And I think that's where it comes from. Like, I want to lean more into the practice myself. I think the consulting, coaching, education stance can be the safer space. And I think that's what I'm here to explore. Like, where is my edge? Where's my frontier?
2: I feel really curious. I feel a charge, a pull towards playing with that question. Where is my edge? Where is my frontier? Starting with your own body, with your own primary experience and seeing if that might help you begin to, to own that question more fully. Would you be willing to, to play with that a little bit? See what it gets us? Yes. Okay. Cool. So for starters, it might help to imagine a situation, and it could be the one we worked on in our last session. It could be um something coming up that a part of you sees yourself, oh, I could just safely be in teacher mode, but actually I could also be in and leader mode, or it could be something else that you're aware of, but some kind of scenario where you one, see an opportunity to practice some leadership, and two, it feels just a little. There's some resistance or fear or worry that if you did, something would go wrong. So let me take a
1: moment to connect with that and let me know when you've got something. Yeah. Okay, good. And would it be helpful
2: and meaningful for you to describe the situation all out loud? We don't need to for this to work, but would you want to share it at all with me and when folks listening, or do you want to just kind of go towards the primary experience? It's a
0: deepening of that that
2: challenge we worked last
0: time, bringing in the orientation towards history, difficult history into the American or into the broader workshop contexts and conversations.
2: Great. I think for our purposes now, we don't need, you know, one takeaway that you might leave with today or that folks listening might leave with. It's like, oh, here's a specific leadership move I could make. And that would be really cool. But my sense of your goal here is is more around where do I want to begin to lead more? So what I want to invite you to do in the spirit of, of helping you touch into that, I want to invite you to notice yourself in this situation as much as you can in your imagination, in your mind's eye. Put yourself there and it may be already on your calendar or it may be something that isn't on your calendar yet, but you could imagine happening. But when you feel like you, Michael, are in this situation in your mind's eye, let me know.
0: Do you want me to share some of the images that come up for me?
2: Yes, please, yes.
0: I'm seeing myself publicly sharing leadership insights from dealing with history in general. I see myself publicly sharing insights from leaning into my own difficult past, and my family's difficult past. And by difficult, I mean also aggressive difficult, not just difficult things that happened to us, but like we committed difficult things. And I'm seeing myself in conversations, public or private, one-on-ones or workshops or panels, mm-hmm. really holding other people through the process of getting in touch with their own difficult history in ways that is encourages learning. So you know, I, I not triggering a lot of people, but I'm also not avoiding the the, the topic. It's it's yeah. kind of there's a there's a nuance, a curiosity, a depth, a a um precision, and in leaning into the discomfort. We talked a lot with, with Mitzi in this episode around disequilibrium and the restorative responses that systems have, right? And, and kind of one of the restorative functions of people avoiding the disequilibrium about difficult past is look into the future, avoid it, just look look into a different direction. And really, like kindly, gently reorienting towards, like you know, there is there is stuff to be named. There is stuff to be examined, to be looked at a little bit more deeply. And so there's a there's both a um, commitment, a precision, a, a um, dedication, and a kindness at the same time. That's what I'm. That's what's comes coming up for me.
2: Mm. Let's maybe just take a moment to allow that balance or that interplay of precision and compassion or kindness, I think was your word, as like a possible image we could deepen into. So maybe we could sort of set that gently on the table. And then what I'd like to do now is you've, you've essentially named three places or scenarios where, where you see an opportunity for leadership. One is, what we might call kind of a public thought leader or public champion of the power of learning from our past. You're going to speak leadership insight, insights about that to who knows which audiences. Another felt like this deeply personal doing work at the level of yourself and your family system and your relationships around where these repressions have shown up in you and these aggressions have shown up in you. And the third is um, sitting with others right at that intersection with both precision and compassion. We won't have time to work all of these today, but I'm glad you've named them. And I wonder, is there one that you feel drawn to today to unpack and lean into a bit more? Hmm. I may. <laughs> ah. <laughs> <What>? Yes. <laughs> okay. Good. Good. <laughs> Clear reaction here. The second one. And tell me more about the laughter and what's happening for you as you touch into that second option. You know, any I'm
0: getting on a flight tomorrow. I'm flying to Germany for a week and a half. And these days I, I only connect back to my home country and my family, like on these trips, like once or twice a year. So I've got a real opportunity ahead of me to inquire maybe actively inquire but also passively (laughs) receive (laughs) some data (laughs) as i'm going home uh so that's that's where the the laughter was about and and um and there's kind of it's it's an anxious laughter because i know that there is and i'm i'm not sure to what extent i want to talk about this right now but there is some unresolved pieces in my own history my own family's history that have been unnamed or taboos, and I have questions around, and and there would be an opportunity for me to do some of this work.
2: Yeah. And I don't think we'll need to talk about it today, or maybe not even in any session, but what I would like to do is help you get some more first-person data about that possibility of exercising leadership for yourself and your family system to see that what it might tell you about your bigger question of of exercising leadership in this space. So what I want to invite you to do, and again, you're totally in charge here. You get to decide what you share out loud and what what you work with inside. But what I want to invite you to do is imagine yourself in Germany in a context where you might have an opportunity to exercise leadership in your family system. And What I want you to do is you imagine that situation. Maybe let's pause there and just let me know when you've got a situation in mind. And again, you don't have to describe it unless you want to. Yeah. Great. And then I want, as you imagine yourself exercising leadership in that situation, I want you to notice how it feels in your body to make that move or to take that risk. And it's likely that you'll notice some sensations somewhere in or around your body as you imagine yourself doing that. Yeah.
0: Noticing some sweaty armpits (laughs) right now. Yeah, I will say some cold, sweaty armpits. (laughs) Good. The tips of my fingers are also a little bit sweaty and cold. Some tension around my shoulders, shoulders tensing up.
2: Great. And now it's possible you may be experiencing the the sweat and the fingertips and the shoulders as one kind of experience, or it's possible those may be separate responses. But I simply wanna invite you with as much self-compassion as you can muster to bring your attention to one or the collective whole of these sensations, and simply notice what thought patterns or emotions start to come up uh, now that you notice this physical experience. There's no rush here, but if you're getting anything, any thought patterns or images or emotions as you focus on the sensation, when you're ready, feel free to share those. There's something around, I don't really have
0: thoughts, but fear, fear comes up and the, um, the image of my, the parent yelling.
2: Mm. And what is the fear afraid of? If, uh, an elder figure, like a parent were yelling, what's it afraid would happen? It feels pretty existential. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's something like death about that.
0: Yeah. And, and, and I'm like, I'm like, as you know, I'm connecting to the, the child in me, Mm. a child that is,
2: um, dependent on the parent to provide. Beautiful. So let's just stay here for maybe two more minutes. I want to invite you, you said I'm connecting to the child. I want to invite you to from your highest and best self, from a place of both precision and compassion, connect to that child right now and simply ask what the child wants you to know or what it needs from you right now for the child to feel safe.
1: Hmm.
0: This may sound a little weird. The child needs to know that I'm there. Yeah. There's a a trustworthy, holding energy, parental energy there that is watching out for the child and the child's curiosity for learning.
2: And Michael, do you feel like you're in a place in this moment where you could let the child know that you can do that? That you, that this child can trust you not to yell at it and support it as you navigate these sensitive waters yeah yeah i can
0: support a child and me um, but there's another energy which is what it happens if the child meets its right real yes. <laughs> real parent yeah yes. <laughs> i think that child may may need a little bit more to like just know like i'm not gonna yell at you but like what how's that 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 child and be protected
2: yeah so michael as we come down our home stretch here i want to invite you to set an intention which we won't have time to work today to connect with that child around that question because you haven't actually made a commitment to exercise any leadership next week in germany you are totally permitted to do whatever you choose based on where you're at now yeah we've just been working with the possibility So just set an intention to connect with that inner energy, that childlike energy around the what if, what if we do exercise leadership and we get yelled at and let me know when that's done. Yeah. Great. Beautiful. And we can either, if you and I do another session, we can go into that if it feels right, or you can bring that to another coach or do that work on your Mm -hmm. own. But as we step back from the scenario, I'm going to ask, what connections are you making to how? you imagine yourself stepping in to lead more in this space that you've articulated after this work today? Gosh, I'm getting in
0: touch with the enormous fragility and protectiveness that is related to this work. I mean that that child, that image of that child that came up here for me that was scared to like even like ask questions at home a little bit more. That felt pretty real, yeah. And I've intellectually heard the name fragility. I've I've read about it, but wow, mm-hmm. there it is. Yes, that's my own my own restorative, my own <laughs> <laughs> kind of when when the disequilibrium goes up in terms of like how safe does it feel? Like the restorative function is 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 I'm protecting, I'm avoiding those conversations to keep that energy within me safe somehow.
2: And I can notice a part in me that could see someone else avoiding an issue in that way and going like, well, I don't want to get yelled at and judging them for being too weak or afraid or uh, not strong enough. But let's like really get in touch with that insight that it's likely that many other people, particular people in what we call white bodies, have some version of that fragility around actually talking about this stuff. Yeah. So here in our last two minutes, as you get connected to this question, what would success look like six months from now?
0: What are you in touch with now? Oh, this is great, Andy. The work here is not me practicing more leadership on DEI and being out there talking about DEI, but actually like talking about this fragility, this, own experience of the inner protectiveness that shows up as I'm engaging with that question, that is the work because that's where the frontier
2: lies. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, there's something about you doing that in those other places that I experience as a kind of invitation and a normalization for other folks who might want to join you over in that conversation, but feel too afraid to.
0: Yeah. And, and I have found ways I have found like half a year from now, success for me will look like I have found ways to give voice to meaning to that fragility and found ways to engage with us. And what did I say? Kind and precise ways.
2: <laughs> yeah. Which you just did for yourself. Well, we're at our time boundary. I'm really excited if we get the chance to go deeper with you on this or to hear how you go deeper into that. Is there anything else you need to say today, Michael, for this session to be complete?
0: Andy, just as always, so much gratitude. Thanks for thanks for leading me to this, this point of insight here.
2: Mm. It was beautiful work, really beautiful. And it's fun to be with you. And it's a real honor to be part of this amazing project you're producing. I can't wait for people to hear this podcast. I think it's gonna be really special. Thanks, Andy.
0: On the balcony, we'll be back with episode three. We'll be joined by Kim Leary, adaptive leadership practitioner in the White House and the Urban Institute and professor at Harvard. She and I will discuss chapter three of leadership without easy answers with the title, The Roots of Authority, where we will examine the difference between leadership and authority, one of the big cornerstones of the framework. We'll also learn about her collaboration with Ron Heifetz on developing the framework further. This comes in the form of a new class at Harvard on authority. One thing they looked at was how to help people find new ways of working with authority, because often people tend to be on one side of the extremes. Here is a brief preview. There's often this binary With
1: authority, you're for it or you're against it. You're seeking power or you're allergic to power. And we created a kind of gradient for our students to work with that there's submitting to authority on the one hand and there's coupling authority on the other. But if you think about it as a gradient, and if you can kind of stretch that out, you could see that there are many ways that you might react to authority, you might question it. You might partner with authority. You might question authority skeptically or lovingly, you know, different ways that one could respond apart from the binary. And that was really eye-opening for our
0: students. Also, I'll continue on my own coaching journey, this time with a new coach, my wonderful colleague, Judith Teichert. If you like the show, press the subscribe button and leave a review. That helps others to connect to the Adaptive Leadership Framework and its applications. On the Balcony is brought to you by Kono, Growing and Provoking Leadership. We're produced by Prodigy. Editing, Riley Byrne, Daniel Link, Christy Parrott, and Emily Weiner. Cover art by Kenneth Emojo and Rosie Greenberg. Our music is called Change in Blue by Hannah Gill and the Hours. Thanks for listening. We'll see you for episode three, On the Balcony.